Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 103, An Aristocracy of Pig Farmers. First, very happy holidays to everyone. It's the day before Christmas Eve here in Sofia. It's getting a bit cold, but still it's very cozy and lovely, and I'm happily in a new apartment with my fiancé. So very kind of happy greetings from here, and in particular to, first, Clay Shane, our newest Patreon patron, and to Dmitry Kolov for his very generous donation to the podcast. But well wishes to all of you. Thanks so much for listening, for supporting everything you all do. So, First, a quick note. So last time I talked about rebels from Kurgily, but that kind of reading of a tra- basically that my translation of mine was from a, a Bulgarian source and shows some of the limitations of my Bulgarian because uh, they're actually not from Kurgily, but they're more general rebels. And the word Kurgily evidently derives from Ottoman words meaning kind of field robber. So I just sort of assumed that that meant that they were sort of from the Kurgily area. I was wrong, so sorry for that mistake. All right, last time, we began with Russia and Austria fighting the Ottomans in the 1790s, but concerns about Prussia and revolutionary France pressed both states to accept minimal gains despite substantial battlefield victories. With this move, the Serbs were betrayed by the Austrians yet again, and Russia's status as the best potential benefactor of the Balkan peoples was further reinforced. Soon after, Poland was carved up by Russia, Prussia, and Austria, ending the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Then, the Ottoman ruler Vidin, Osman Pazvandolu, rose up to build his own quasi-state in defiance of the Sultan, who sent massive armies which failed to oust him. Seeing the ineffectiveness of his forces, Sultan Selim III founded a new Western-style military force. But just as that was underway, Napoleonic France invaded Ottoman Egypt, triggering war between the ancient allies and preventing Selim from being able to deal with Pazvantolu. Napoleon moved north into Syria before being pushed back to Egypt and ultimately fleeing, whereupon the British and Ottomans finished off his remaining forces. In 1803, a British onlooker noted that, quote, "...almost the whole extent of European Turkey presents a dreadful picture." of anarchy, rebellion, and barbarism, end quote. Nowhere was this more true at this moment than in Ottoman-controlled Serbia. At the dawn of the 19th century, Serbs living under Ottoman rule faced one too many abuses at the hands of local rulers known as the Dahi, and sent a letter to Selim asking for relief. In response, the local rulers murdered dozens of Serbian nobles, not holders of proper noble titles, but more men of local importance who helped govern their own local communities. Also, note that historian Misha Glenny points out that the Dahi were so abusing Serbs and who they essentially triggered the uprising, but they were actually Slavs themselves. So kind of these classic narratives we have of sort of 
Ottoman Turks abusing poor local Slavs doesn't always really match that. And oftentimes, as we know from the Janissaries, you know, the people in the Ottoman ranks and the people who are you know, ruling on behalf of the Ottomans, whether Muslims or not, are often from the local population, actually. So anyways, the moment we left off last time was the very moment the remaining Serb Knezes, or kind of local notables, declared an uprising. But I must point out again that this was no simple uprising against Ottoman misrule. The Ottoman central government had provided fairly generous policies towards the Serbs in this region. But it was the Dahi acting against the Sultan's government who had to be taken away. And so, ironically, the Serbs were rising up actually in favor of a return of rule by Constantinople and against the locals who were kind of going against Constantinople. Thus, the uprising began as Christians fighting Muslims in favor of the rule of other Muslims. Now, a bit more about just who these local Serbian notables were. The phrase used to describe them that I love the most, and which gave this episode its title, is an aristocracy of pig farmers. Their wealth was built on raising pigs in Ottoman lands in Ottoman Serbia before selling them over the river to Habsburg's markets, which obviously were very interested in pork. If you've ever been to Central Europe, it's a very pork-heavy place. Now, one of these men was known as Karadjorj, or Black George. Karadjorj had been spared by the Janissaries' preemptive strike against the Serbian Knezes. He had fought in the Austrian volunteer units against the Ottomans and amassed great wealth, by local standards at least, and even spent some of his time as a hajduk, as a kind of bandit. He soon became the primary leader of the 20 to 30,000 Serbian troops who moved through the countryside, attacking Ottoman property and forcing Muslim inhabitants into fortified towns, which were then put under siege. His main challenge, no surprise, was discipline. Many of his soldiers were themselves homeless refugees from nearby areas like Vidin. Others were simply peasants more interested in taking some loot home than sustaining a proper fight. Karadjorj wielded symbols of medieval Serbia, talked about the great loss of Kosovo Polje, but peasants would still grow bored of sieges and would go home to help with the harvest. Still, it only took about a year before the Dahis were defeated. Smuggled Austrian weapons and the assistance of a 7,000-man Ottoman force from Bosnia helped ensure a Serb victory. With this victory, Karadjorj and his followers requested the Sultan grant the Serbs autonomy, similar to the status of Wallachia and Moldavia. Selim had a difficult decision to make. True, the Serbs had just fought on his behalf against the local notables and Janissaries who were holding back his efforts at reform. But on the other hand, Selim feared this autonomy was one step on the way to full Serbian independence. He also faced enormous pressure from the conservative Islamic elite who were incensed about helping Christians fight fellow Muslims. By the summer of 1805, Selim had made his decision on how to deal with the Serbs. They were willing to submit to him, provided he made some guarantees of their freedom. But allowing an armed Christian army in his lands was simply too much, particularly for the religious class. A large Ottoman army was sent to Nish, where it was surprisingly defeated by the Serbs at the Battle of Ivankovac. 
At this moment, as historian Misha Glennie put it, quote, Kata George and his allies were no longer fighting miscreant janissaries. They were at war with the imperial order. End quote. But the wars against the imperial order were going on far beyond Serbia. In this case, the main actor was yet another man from the Balkans, this time an ethnic Albanian from Kavala, now in northern Greece, who went to help reoccupy Egypt following Napoleon's defeat there. His name was Muhammad Ali, and once in Egypt, he took advantage of the conflict between the Mamluks attempting to re-exert themselves and the Ottomans working to crush them and re-exert their own control. In the process, Muhammad Ali became very popular with the people of Cairo. And so, in 1805, he managed to get himself appointed governor of Egypt by Sultan Selim. With this new position, Ali began to consolidate power for himself. For now, he was ably representing Ottoman interests in Egypt. But Ali had not been appointed from a position of strength. Selim and the Ottomans were finding themselves increasingly unable to fully exert control throughout the empire as men like Muhammad Ali took advantage. But for now, he still ruled in the Sultan's name. While events were progressing in Egypt, they were also progressing elsewhere. First, in November of 1805, the Russians and the Habsburgs lost the Battle of Austerlitz. The Serbs were making further gains, taking Smederevo that same month and making it their capital. And, fearing results of these gains, Selim III responded by formally declaring jihad, a holy war against the Serbs. At the same time, Russia signed a peace treaty with France, which suddenly brought France rocketing into the Balkans as a new political and military force, really for the first time. France was given the Adriatic coast, Venice, and Istria. Now, I neglected to mention that the Venetian Republic, that ancient Ottoman enemy, was disbanded and annexed by Austria eight years previously. I should have mentioned that in the episode, but it skimmed past me. So as we can see here, with Venice gone, France entering in, you know, Austria becoming less important, Russia becoming more important, the broader geopolitical situation around the Serbian uprising and in the Balkans more generally is changing extremely fast. Suddenly now, Russia was weaker, though, because of this you know, treaty with France and the lost at Austerlitz, and France was on the Ottoman doorstep, bestowing new importance on the Serbian revolt. In the spring of 1806, under the guise of sending further reinforcements to Belgrade, Selim sent 24,000 troops of his new order, the new kind of Western-style military force, to Thrace to establish barracks there. The idea was that these soldiers could help offset the power of the Janissaries and would protect the population from all the banditry going on. The first town near Constantinople on the Sea of Marmara, in which the force attempted to set up a barracks, resisted with the local Qadi, or judge, at the head of the resistance. The Qadi was replaced, but the replacement and his supporters were lynched by a mob of mostly Janissaries. Even here, though, we were only talking a mere 135 kilometers from the capital, Selim couldn't exert effective control, and the new order, this new, more powerful Western-style military, was unable to exert itself. Ultimately, it took bombardment from ships to force the city to agree to let the New Order troops in. Similar events took place throughout Thrace as local Janissaries and Ayans put together plans to overthrow Selim in response to this attack on their privileges and position. Now, 
The irony is that the soldiers now attempting to create garrisons in Thrace were desperately needed where they were ostensibly originally sent to in Serbia, right? The, the, the situation in Serbia was going pretty badly, and instead of going to help there, these forces are trying to set up garrisons in Thrace. In Serbia, Karo George had entrenched 8,000 men in an eastern fortress to prevent 40,000 Ottoman reinforcements from reaching Belgrade. After several days of hard fighting, superior Serbian command and morale allowed their small force to push the Ottomans back, thus keeping Belgrade vulnerable. The very next month, the Serbs won yet another substantial victory at Delingrad, leading to a six-week truce with the Ottomans. Meanwhile, Selim was forced to step back from his attempt to create new order garrisons in Thrace and Rumelia. His troops pulled back to the capital and into Anatolia. The so-called Edirne incident marked the death blow of his attempts at reform. If his new army couldn't even manage to garrison territories closest to his power base in Constantinople, well, they didn't stand a chance of ultimately challenging, yet alone replacing, the powerful Janissaries. But Selim still had some moves to play. In the final months of 1806, he signed a formal alliance with Napoleonic France, showing that power politics could overcome the awkwardness of that whole invasion of Egypt and Syria. Russia and Britain responded by declaring war, as Selim deposed the pro-Russian rulers of Wallachia and Moldavia, and, well, I mentioned that before, uh, of course, though, this whole thing was really hardly a war the Ottomans were prepared for. You get a real sense that they're not ready to go to war with Great Britain and Russia. Within a month, Russia moved 40,000 troops south to occupy Wallachia and Moldavia, easily pushing aside any resistance. At the same time, Belgrade was taken, having held out only against the Serbs for maybe a month. The soldiers and civilians leaving the city who had been promised safe passage were ambushed. Men were killed, women were forcibly converted to orthodoxy or given out as wives, while children were put in the care of orthodox families to unknown fates. The mosques of Belgrade were either destroyed or turned into churches. The brutalized city was quickly declared as Serbia's new capital. As the final days of 1806 drew to a close, the situation was truly looking grim for the Ottomans, and in particular for Sultan Selim. The Serbian uprising had effectively taken control of everything north of Belgrade, while the Russians were in possession of Wallachia and Moldavia. All the while, at home, Selim had been thoroughly cowed by the Janissaries and the Ayans. The French allied territories in the Western Balkans held some hope for assistance but just how much the French could really help was very much up in the air. Now, in the early days of 1807, at the very least there was some good news as Osman Pazvantolu died in Viden. There was some debate about succession with his son being only 13, but ultimately it seems the central government was able to re-exert some basic level of control here. His son eventually went to Constantinople and dropped off the historical record, and so it seems like this whole semi-independent state in Vidin kind of just fizzled out. In February 1807, this new war came to the high seas. First, the British Navy became involved. Well, as we know, they declared war. 
The British army was really far too small and overstretched with the whole Napoleonic War thing going on to have much of an impact, but the British Navy did stand a chance of having a real impact and pressuring the Ottomans to possibly abandon their alliance with France. So, a fleet of British ships attempted to run the Dardanelles, navigating Ottoman battery fire to reach the Sea of Marmara. However, once in the sea, they faced yet more resistance and eventually withdrew without even attacking Constantinople, which had been their goal. Around this time, the Russian fleet operating the Mediterranean did establish a blockade of the Dardanelles, which as we know from the war with Crete many, you know, quite a long time ago, could create major problems in the capital. The British then regrouped and set sail for Alexandria, intent on taking the city and setting up a base of operations there. A few hundred sailors and guns mounted an amphibious landing and took the city in March. Muhammad Ali was off fighting in Upper Egypt, south of what's in what's now Sudan. Remember, Upper Egypt refers to the Upper Nile, which flows from south to north, so it gets confusing. Point is, Muhammad Ali was too far away, so he had to quickly rush back, worried that some of his bays, his kind of sub-rulers, might side with the British. Soon, though, British attempts to explain their foothold outside of Alexandria failed, and they found themselves basically under siege in the city. Muhammad Ali offered to let them go and assure British trade routes to India if his independence from the Ottomans was recognized, but the British refused. Still, this move really showed where Muhammad Ali was thinking, and at this point he was acting basically independent of any central Ottoman control. By May, the Russian blockade, though, was having its intended effects on Constantinople, and the city was ravaged by food riots. In response to this, as well as the many failed attempts at reducing influence in the Janissaries with his new or- order army, a coup deposed Sultan Selim III. Really, that's no surprise at this point. The coup had the support of the Sheikh al-Islam, who issued a fatwa stating that Selim was condemned for introducing among the Muslims the manners of infidels and showing an intention to suppress the Janissaries, end quote. The sultan's 28-year-old cousin Mustafa IV was placed on the throne. Selim was placed in a comfortable prison, while Mustafa pardoned the Janissaries who initiated the coup and disbanded the New Order army for good. Now, despite the presence of Mustafa on the throne, the overthrow of Selim immediately triggered riots throughout the capital, in which Janissaries enacted their revenge by killing anyone who had supported the previous sultan. Selim was forced to flee the palace and attempted to kill himself, but was saved by his cousin and sultan Mustafa. But beyond the internal politics, Mustafa had wars to contend with. He sent a massive force to push the Russians out of Wallachia, but they were defeated by a far smaller force. In Armenia, Yet again, a smaller Russian force defeated the Ottomans. The blockade of Constantinople was also ongoing, and an Ottoman fleet slipped out and engaged the Russians, only to be defeated. The Russians attempted to pursue and destroy the damaged Ottoman vessels, but were prevented from entering the straits by the shore batteries. Now, a month later, another Ottoman fleet slipped into the Aegean, again only to have the Russian fleet swoop in and cut off their retreat. In the ensuing battle, the Ottoman fleet was completely destroyed, effectively leaving the empire without a seaworthy naval force for a decade. In July, things only got worse for the Ottomans. On the 7th, following a major French victory, Napoleon signed the Treaty of Tilsit 
with Russia and Prussia. It cemented Napoleonic control of Central Europe and forced the Russians to ally with France against Britain and Sweden. But interestingly enough, Alexander I and Napoleon also agreed to conquer all of the European possessions of the Ottomans, with Russia gaining Bessarabia, Moldavia, Wallachia, and Bulgaria north of the Balkan Mountains, while France would get Albania, Thessaly, Morea, and Crete, while Austria would gain Bosnia and Serbia. Tsar Alexander further suggested that if France gained Egypt and Syria, Russia could gain Constantinople, the rest of Bulgaria, and Thrace. But Napoleon is reported to have exclaimed, Constantinople, Constantinople, never, for it is the empire of the world. Well, with that, it seemed like this whole idea of turning everyone against the Ottomans kind of fell apart, but it does give you some sense of how the European powers were viewing the Ottoman Empire, that it should either be propped up as is, or kind of immediately carved up between them. There wasn't very much interest in kind of the self-determination of the Ottoman people, or the people within the Ottoman Empire. So, what did all of this kind of mean for the ongoing war against the French-allied Ottoman Empire then? Well, in the days following the treaty, the Serbs signed an alliance with Russia after rejecting an Ottoman offer of autonomy. This is in part because the boundaries of Serbia could not be agreed upon. But it also seemed that the Serbian revolution had now just gone too far to really turn back. They couldn't accept anything less than full independence after all the gains that they had made. Of course, with the Russians having just made peace with France, this alliance meant very little, and just a month later, an armistice was signed between the Ottomans and the Russians. So, in essence, the Serbs had sort of tied themselves to the Russians just at the moment the Russians were really pulling back. Once again, the Ottomans were losing badly on the European front, but were suddenly saved by the events of the Napoleonic Wars. And it was clear that they really couldn't stand up against Russia and Austria and France in a straight-up fight, but they continued to kind of benefit from the changing political landscape. Still, as they were now experiencing some kind of respite from Russia's armies, and with Sultan Mustafa at the throne, there at least wasn't a major prospect of any more Janissary revolts, as the Janissaries generally supported the Sultan. Another plus for the Ottomans was the increasing infighting amongst the Serbian command, as they were all increasingly concerned over Kara George's attempts to centralize power with himself. But it is in this uncertain moment that this season will come to an end. Season 5, Ottoman Decline, began in 1566 with the death of Suleiman the Magnificent and the failure of the Siege of Malta. Now, the Ottoman Empire is a shadow of its former self. The next two episodes will have a summation and more kind of analysis of these few centuries. I always stumble on some new sources and information as I go, and so I'll include some of that in the summary episodes. And once that's done, in early 2020, we'll tackle Season 6, Bulgarian Awakening. Now, I'm personally excited both because this is a fascinating period of history and because my pile of 19th century Bulgarian history books will finally come in handy. So next time after the season recap, we'll see what happens to Russia, the Ottomans, the Serbs, and the Bulgarians as the Napoleonic Wars finally come to a conclusion. We'll see whether further attempts at reform might finally be successful within the Ottoman Empire and 
whether any power in the Ottoman Empire will finally be able to tackle the might of the Janissaries. And, of course, we'll see the slow kind of rising of Bulgarian national consciousness, ultimately leading to Bulgarian independence. So, in other words, don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, along with, and you can see the link in the episode description, all the maps and timelines and important characters from this and all the other episodes. And, well, happy holidays and I'll see you next time.